Hey guys, Dan here. I want to say a massive thank you to our new sponsors, Fight Fuel UK. Fight Fuel UK are a sports supplement and clothing company for the boxing, MMA, and martial arts community. Be sure to check out their great products on fightfuel.co.uk. And remember, guys, by supporting our sponsors, you support the podcast. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy this episode. Recording there. Cool. Cool. So here we are with the third installment of the Lenjois MMA. How I want to call it? That's quite a nice little ring to it. How you doing, my friend? Yeah, How's um, Sunny Thailand? Ring to it. <laughs> yeah, mate. It's uh, yeah, we moment. So I've got a hoodie on. Not, I am still repping. No, not in MMA. Just thought I'd uh, rep it while I'm over here. <laughs> well, this is it. You can't forget your roots, Norris. Now. Definitely not. This is quite a change of scenery, though, because we're used to the sort of, you know, the sunny backgrounds, the set and the other, the recently used speedos, and now you're in your hammock all doom and gloom, but here we are. Yeah, exactly, yeah. This is it. So there's an interesting card last night. Let me pull it up. So we had a few stars from um, the Contender Series. We had, um, I'm always butcher his name, Shabazian against um, Derek Brunson. Now, yep. even before we go into the result in itself, the build-ups, that's quite an interesting one. Because, again, you have these kind of young prospects who do really well and have really tough fights, and then they get this sort of main event stage. Now, I'm curious as to how beneficial that is for that sort of stage in their career. At what stage do you feel someone should have a main event headline spot, albeit on a fight, fight night thing? Well, well, with this, it was kind of a forced main event. So they weren't necessarily meant to be the main event to start with. Um, as far as I know, it was a forced main event because they still only had a three-round fight. It wasn't a five-round fight. Mm. Um, so I don't think he was necessarily meant to be having a main event so soon. But, you know, he did step up and obviously they took the main event um, since they got moved up from co-main event. Um, it's an awkward one because he's been smashing everybody. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, what his, his toughest fight so far was uh, Darren Stewart. The dentist, mm. um, UK guy. So that was his toughest fight. That's the only fight he's been out of the first round, I think, um, so far in his UFC career. Um, so it's always a hard one, but it's um, it was a, a big step up for him last night or this morning for me over here in Thailand. Um, and it was an interesting fight. Now, regards of your own experience, regards, regards with your own experience in like competing. And where you sit yep. on the card, how does that affect your mentality towards the events? So say if you're, I don't know, Ami on the card, no one knows who you are except for your mates, versus okay, you're now the profile on the main card, this, that, and the other. Does that affect your I don't know, build up to the whole event itself? How do you find that variant? Um I mean yeah, it does. It's, you know, I used to like fighting early. People will say, like, get it out of the way and then you can yeah, enjoy the rest of the night. You know what I mean? So you can watch the rest of the fights and stuff. When you're on later on, it's the waiting round in the, in the change rooms at the back is an absolute nightmare. You've seen people go out, come back in, go out, come back in, and you just sat there waiting. Um, I'm guessing on the UFC, it would be a little bit different to that because you're not all in the same change room together. You're all sort of separate and, and uh, in your own sort of change rooms and stuff. But... Um, just, just, just the waiting sort of drags it out, makes you feel tired, even though you're not necessarily tired, uh, but it, it makes you feel tired because you've been waiting for so long. Um, and then obviously the added pressure of obviously, you know, your main event or co-main event on a, on a, on a local show in, in 
in for me, obviously in Nottingham in my own backyard. Um, and then you've got you know plenty of people out there that know you as well as your friends and your family and stuff like that. So it does add that extra bit of pressure that you've got to perform because you are you know more highlighted on the card. And even with that in itself, Porsche Basio made an interesting one, the variant of also having not having a live crowd. Because again, at that stage, it doesn't really make a lot difference in the sense of, okay, yes, you are the main event, but you haven't got the same crowd atmosphere. You haven't got the same kind of, I don't know. It's almost, it's just what they've called it, if you see what I mean, opposed to making much of a variance. Obviously, the round being different, but in the sense of the perspective of the whole build-up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the crowd will make a big difference, not having the crowd there. But he is in UFC, so he's got all the eyes still on him, whether there's a crowd there or not. So the pressure's still kind of there. And out of the um, performances on the main card, who stood out to you? Um, who stood out on the main card was probably Vicente Luque. Mm. Uh, another great fight. He was fighting Randy Brown. Yep. Uh, another contender series um, guy that's come through that. I'm sure he's from contender series. Um, but yeah, it was a really good fight. Again, it was a step up for Randy Brown. Vicente Luque, you know, he's ex-Ultimate uh, Fighter. Um, he's been there for a while now. Um, and he's a, he's, a, he's a really, you know, tough fight in that welterweight division. But I think he just looked great again. Um, if he was nice and patient, um, he looked great. And then, again, Brunson in the, uh, main, main, uh, in the main event, um, he looked really, really good. He's now obviously changed his fight camp. Uh, he's training with the guys. That, is it Hard Knocks? Yeah, Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks, that's it, yeah. With Henry Hood, uh, yeah. Hard Knocks? Yeah, Henry Hood, sorry. Henry Hood. That's it, yeah. So he's, he's been with them for, this is their third fight now. And he's 3-0 with them guys. Mm. Well, he looked really good. A lot more patient. He didn't sort of rush in. Yeah. And there was a few interesting things saw on the prelims. The first fight on there was Cody Durden against, um, I think it was Chris Gutierrez. And again, it was a really interesting sort of exchanges. Because if you see the first round, Cody gets Gutierrez's back against the fence. And you just see Gutierrez sort of showing up, but intentionally to try and stall out to then stand up again. And there onwards, Gutierrez just absolutely lit him. They're not with just strikes, loads of kicks, left, right, and center. Which then begs another question I find quite interesting with MMA as a whole, is the reset. Do you feel the next round should resume where the last one left off or keep starting from the feet? Because that Save by the Bell thing is very much, I don't know, get a jail free card. Because if you're giving up the back, I don't feel it's a justifiable escape, but okay, you've just waited an extra second. Now you've escaped. No, you've you're, got your back taken against the fence. I feel a bit like, okay, but cheated out almost. What's your views on that? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, if you're the one on the back, then yeah, you're going to want to restart on the back. If you're the one not on the back, if you're not shelling up, you're going to want to hope that you're uh, going to reset, obviously, how we normally do in a round. But, um, I mean, stalling out, you know, it's a tactic for winning the round and losing the round. You know, you can, you can be losing the round and still stall out because you know you've only got a minute to go and you're like, okay, cool, I've lost this round, it's fine. Reset the next one, I'm on my feet again. You know, we're going to start and we can stand and bang or whatever the, the game plan is from there onwards. But then also winning the round as well, you know, it could be a close round, you took it down at the end and you just stall out for a minute. So it works, you know, for both sides of the, both sides of the coin sort of thing. 
you know, for winning the round and losing the round. So um, I, I like the reset on the feet, you know, even though when I was a grappler, you know, I'd be winning the round and sort of like, you know, um, landing good shots and stuff like that there. And I know, I wouldn't, you know, I fought some tough guys, so you're not always going to finish them every time you get them down to the ground. So, you know, you do have to use the, use the round and use the time as your advantage sometimes. So, you know, you can kind of save a little bit of energy, throw one or two shots for the last minute just to keep you where you was. You've won the round and then you reset from the, the feet and start again. I mean, that in itself, again, it's a very biased kind of sort of question that if you are the one with the, with the dominant position, you're going to want to reset in that dominant position and obviously the opposite vice versa. But then it also begs the same kind of question that should there even be round differentials? Should there even be second, like individual kind of increments? Because in that point, okay, you haven't, you know, the old school days, like no time limit, okay, you've got this one kind of event. It's a bit of a, it's a funny one. Yeah. It's to try and think, okay, at what point is it sport? And then being a sport has to be tactical, has to be played properly. It's not a case of, okay, you just got to be the, the artist, like in the thing you've got. No, you've got to be more tactical and sort of play the game as such. And I'll tell you what, I was yeah, watching definitely. the 1FC card. Yeah, exactly. Using the rounds to... So I was watching 1FC card. I thought it was really interesting with that in the way they have sort of variants yep. of different sort of styles on the same kind of card. And I've seen that on a few sort of amateur shows as well. What do you think to that in the sense of, okay, you want to go to an MMA show to watch an MMA fight. Would you, how would you find watching other disciplines whilst that's going on? Is it something you'd... I don't know. What do you find I'm, to that? I'm happy with it. I'm a fan of all martial arts. So for me, it's, you know, I love watching a bit of boxing. I love watching some of the kickboxing, the K1, uh, Muay Thai, depends on whatever rule set you, 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 know, you want to do. I'm a, I'm a fan of going to multi-discipline shows. Um, you get a little bit of everything in there. I mean, this is kind of where I'm at as well. And it's an interesting one to sort of give the lesser respected disciplines, I want to say. Because say Muay Thai, the people in that world would love it, respect it. But the... Joe Bloggs doesn't know what Muay Thai is. They don't appreciate what it is. And also, for some reason, it's not the same level of mark, not marketable. And I don't know yeah. why. Why is just striking? Because people love the UFC, but they always moan about the grappling. So why is, why, why is striking in itself not just like the, the apex of all this sort of hybrid? And in that in itself, there's a really interesting thing with 1FC, the one championship. They have um, Muay Thai with MMA gloves. Now, that is absolutely spot on because again when you have big gloves you defend so differently and if you're going to transition into mma from a striking discipline those little nuances make a world of difference and i think i'd like to see a lot more even boxing like that because bare knuckle to an extent is a i don't know that's edging on the spectrum of okay this is getting a bit too what's the, what's the word barbaric's dramatic but like a little less um it's too brutal yeah it's a not marketable in the same sense because say you take the yeah. eye maps of okay you've got rash guards you've got pads everywhere it's mma but it's a very much like okay this is like marketable is the wrong word you know what i mean like sort of government friendly sort of family friendly version like a sort of yeah and then you get more purist kind of okay this is we're planting our feet we're swinging for the fences valet tudo style and it's like a happy medium i feel like i'd like to see more boxing and like pro mma gloves to try and give that extra sort of variability. Okay, this is that happy medium between, okay, this is MMA sort of style striking without the sort of clinches. And again, it's sort of adapting and see where these sort of levels adapt to. Because you say the tell like Floyd Mayweather, the way he boxes and the way his defense is, 
again, it's based around using these big gloves. And it's then to see how these sort of high-level strikers can then adapt. And I feel you'll see a lot more UFC guys and MMA purists. I don't know. Experiment more on there because I feel. How do you find cross training? Do you are you want to cross train a lot? Or are you more to stick with MMA purists when it comes to fighting an MMA fight? No, cross. I love cross training. I think we spoke about this on one of our other podcasts. Mm. But um, if, I wish I would have done more cross training and cross competing um, when I was when I was just starting out. Um, I used to tell all the amateurs in the gym that you know I know they walk into the gym and they want to be an, an MMA fighter, um, but you know, go in there and have some, you know, you know, the unlicensed or semi-professional boxing. Go in and have a couple of them. Um, go in and have some of the sort of white-collar sort of boxing matches. Go in there and have a little bit of kickboxing, even with the pads on. Just everything and anything to do with combat is going to help you in the future. Um, you're just going to be, feel a lot more comfortable in that sort of arena, sort of like whether it be a ring or a cage or a circle or whatever it is on a matted area with people watching you, you feel a lot more comfortable, especially when it comes to striking kind of stuff. Because that's where you need to feel most comfortable. I mean, everybody kind of feels comfortable on the floor. You know, once you've done a few MMA sort of classes, you know, you think you're a jiu-jitsu wizard sort of thing um, or, or a high-level wrestler. But Have you spoke to my coaches? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. It's, it's the striking that I really think people need to feel comfortable with. You know, like we've just mentioned, you know, at the end of every round, it's always going to start standing. You know, it starts standing. Even if it goes halfway through the round, it gets a little bit slow on the ground. The referee stops you, you start standing. So that's where you need to feel most comfortable because that's where the fight starts, like, all the time, you know. So I, I, I would definitely recommend for any young fighters listening to this now, is definitely sort of like cross-training, do cross competitions as well. Go and do a little bit of boxing, do a little bit of kickboxing, do a little bit of Muay Thai. Feel the, feel the difference and then you can get the benefits of each one, what works for you, and bring that into your MMA game once you want to step up there and sort, sort of like let the MMA sort of take the priority in your training. I mean, this is always an interesting one. And again, so people seem to find their feet as such. You get people who prefer their striking and get a taste for it and then sort of go off and have these kickboxing fights. But then almost have to drag their feet to a jiu-jitsu comp to try and make up and try and fill in that gap. And this kind of spectrum, it's interesting having that level of variety. And then that in itself, you know how you can have, like I was saying there, you have the Muay Thai with the MMA gloves. Yep. Do you feel it would be beneficial having a ground and pound specific martial art as such? Because you had the EBIs in the combat jits. Like, do you think there's a mm. place for that as such? I don't think you can necessarily turn the ground and pound into a martial art. Um, and I definitely think, you know, in the gym, when it comes to training wise, you should, you should look at that sort of specific style of fighting, which is the ground and pound style of fighting. Um, I remember training with a few guys back in the day and they'd gone from amateur without headshots into amateur with headshots and they'd not really trained the headshots on the ground. And I remember one guy, he was, he was absolutely brilliant on the like grappling sense. But he got in there and ended up on the bottom, which he was quite comfortable on the bottom. And then all of a sudden, he got two or three big punches to the head. And he, you could see in his face, he was like, what the fuck is this? Sort of thing. And just showed up. And obviously, the referee stopped it. Um, but that's because he'd not trained with the ground and pound. Changing it into a, a, a martial art or a, or a sort of competition format on its own, I think you might struggle with it. But you should definitely start training it if you're, if you're sort of like, going from jiu-jitsu into sort of MMA. 
you know, you need to feel comfortable on your back being punched, hundred percent. I mean, again, this is the real variant between jiu-jitsu and MMA jiu-jitsu. And when it comes to, as you're saying, their prime example, people who are comfortable on their back, and then when it comes to adding in ground and bound, it changes the entire sort of premise. Oh, massively. And, and even then, like, there's, a, there's an element, even not even just leather shyness, just being a bit of a, you know, person when it comes to getting hit. No, it's just all the variants and all your sort of priorities. The prime example, like, when it comes to normal jiu-jitsu, sweeping, submitting, and, I don't know, standing up, whatever. Um, when it comes to MMA, you add in striking as well. And the whole order of that changes. You've got to get back to your feet. You can't just sit there and not do anything. You've got to do something. And then it becomes yeah. a competition, who's winning, who's losing, and all these other variables. It gets so, I don't know, there's, there's so much more stress in the whole situation. And even then, this is what I'm trying to say about trying to prioritize and, I don't know, make more of that in the training element. Because this is something that I think people get complacent with. And I'm guilty of it as well when it comes to training, okay, I've got my guard, sort of, I am that boss. When I get tired, you get like, grab your own leg. You're like, okay, you ain't posturing up. I've got the over wrap. I'm getting comfy. <laughs> I might try and work a triangle, but now the round's almost over. Like, everyone's guilty of it a little bit, if they're not their line. I hope they're lying. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those ones. And in that same breath then, wrestling with the wall. And when I say wrestling with the wall, I mean, you know, with an opponent as well, not just the wall itself. And you have a, little, a word with a... <laughs> <laughs> and it's trying to get that specific MMA training in. And I don't know, this is where it gets interesting. That you've got a very multi-varianted, varianted? multi-variant sport. And then trying to train specifically for it. And how you then split this out. So what is your ideal split for a fight camp? What's the training week, would you say, to try and get everything in? <laughs> that you need it is yeah it's really hard to get every everything in um when it comes to mma because there's like you said there's so many different you know ways of training and different styles of training and, and different factors that you need to put into your training um i mean for me um during a fight camp a lot of my training was based around fitness because i'd want to be obviously as fit as i possibly could the last thing i ever wanted to do during a fight was to gas out That'd be my ultimate sort of like I didn't want to do. So obviously we did sort of train a lot of um, fitness style stuff during the fight camps and stuff. Uh, in between fights was when I'd want to try and get better. So that's when I'd start doing more jujitsu classes, sort of wrestling classes, striking classes, um, and then during fight camp again, I'd just try and split it as, as evenly as I could. Um, again, it would depend on the opponent I had. You know, if I'm fighting a striker. I might want to work my striking a little bit more and then my wrestling a little bit more than my actual jiu-jitsu because technically, if I'm fighting a striker, I would hope that my jiu-jitsu would be the strong point of mine. So I wouldn't need to train it as much, but the wrestling side is to get him down to my, to my area and obviously my striking, more like defense and obviously just throw some offense so you know he's, he's not comfortable on his feet completely. Um, and again, if I was going to, face a grappler then I would want to possibly work my takedown defense that'd be one of my main priorities if I wanted to keep it standing so again it depends on your on your game plan for each fight I mean again that's a very interesting answer the way you've gone about that because that variant between having a camp and not having a camp and where your mind is because again when you've got this fight booked you're so stressed you're so focused on this one particular goal with this deadline to try and not only get to your peak performance but also lose that weight and get to a certain 
and the cardio yeah. level, everything is just so heightened. Then try and also try and take an extra stimulus and have fun with that. And even then, like it's a funny one that in an ideal world, you think the MMA sparring itself would cover all the elements you need, but because of the amount of possibilities, you can't always end up in those situations. Now, if we move on back to the UFC for upcoming cards, so the next one we've got lined up, yeah. we've got Derek Lewis against Alexei Olinek, I think is how you say his name. Yeah, I think that's about right. <laughs> there we are, we're getting somewhere. So that'd be an interesting one. So on that card, we've got a few other standouts. So Chris Weidman's coming back again he's against Amari Akhmedov. Now, yeah, and Weidman is going back down to middleweight again. He is indeed. And yeah. also, as mentioned a minute ago, we've got Darren Stewart against Mackie Patolo. Mackay? Yep. Just so it'd be an interesting card in itself. Any predictions from the first glance? Um, well, I, liked what I'm, I like what I'm hearing about the Derek Lewis camp at the moment. I know for the last couple of fights, he has worked a lot more on his stamina. Um, he's got a new strength and conditioning sort of like routine. Um, so again, and during fight camp, like, I think he's, you know, he's trying to get fitter rather than, you know, work on getting better. That's what you do in between camps. Just, um, that's the way I would kind of do it. Um, you know, but, you know, uh, how do you say it? Olenek? Olenek. We're going to go with Olenek. There you go. I'm wasting you today. Um, <laughs> you know, he is just, he's just a beast on the floor. You know, the bow constrictor and he's, you know, that's why he's called it. He's got such a squeeze. And, you know, Derek Lewis, he has been taken down. He has been kind of bullied a little bit on the floor. So, it's, it's a tough one. But I'd like to see Derek win it. I'd like to see him, you know, obviously throwing them big hands. I like the Black Beast. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a good fighter and he's a good character as well. That's his marketable. The thing with um, oh, the constrictor as well, something to take into account, is he beat um, Vadum as well. It'll be a yes. decision, but when it comes to level of grappling and someone like the Doom to sort of weather that storm as well and come out on top. I mean, for anyone who isn't aware, are you are you aware what um, Olix record is? Uh, yes, I've got it right in front of me at the moment. It is fifty nine thirteen and one. Now, people see these numbers and they glance over them. Now, imagine, this is just the wins. Imagine 59 fight camps. Imagine 59 times cutting weight. A professional, albeit. That, that, this is ignoring all the amateurs, all the rest of it. This is just professional MMA fights. And then if we add in... Um, so, so, 73 collective fights on his record. 73 fight camps. And that yeah. level of experience. Like how That's crazy. Now, this is an interesting conversation itself. That level of experience... How do you stay coachable? How do you stay, okay, I'm still a student of the game? Because, again, it's so easy to rest in your laurels of, okay, I've had 59 wins. I can't be going so far wrong. How do you then stay on top? How do you then stay a student? I have no idea. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the passion for the sport. It's got to be that. You know, he's, it's got to be the passion for wanting to get in there. 59 times and knowing that you've already 59 fight camps and like I say that's just including the wins not the not the losses and the draw um, and wanting to get that little tiny percentage better each each fight each each fight that he does each fight camp he does in between each fight camp just trying to get that one little percentage better so it's got to be passion that's all it is and so on that card as well we've got quite a few interesting other 
Python then. I've got Nazrat. Oh, I was going to call him BTIC, Kelvin Gastelum. I hope he doesn't hear that, but here we are. And um, Alex Munoz. So that'd be an interesting one in itself. Because Nazrat's yep. had quite, um, made quite a scene so far in the UFC. He's only 24 as well. I mean, this is, yeah, always, this is something to really appreciate as well, is the age of these people competing. Like, that level of not only experience, but also trying to be in that spot, like, under all this pressure. Like, take Modesto Pukowskis a couple weeks ago. You know, 25, 26. And to be on a yep. UFC card with that level of attention on you. I think about, like, how old were you when you had your first pro fight? I was 25. Now, how did you find that on a albeit a smaller scale than the UFC, how did you find that level of attention in itself, that pressure? Uh, well, I'd come from a judo background, so I'd been competing for quite a while before that. And I didn't really know what to expect. To be honest, I only trained for about two and a half months in my first fight. So I didn't really have a clue what to expect and what to sort of like, what was going to happen. Kind of just went in there, winged it, to be honest. I mean, this is kind of, again, this is... A, different level of variance so when being on that stage and that level of I don't know external pressures because again people who don't seem to take into account often don't tend to get bothered by it in the same sense that if you spend the whole time worrying about people watching you <laughs> it's just going to get in the way whereas if it's not on the radar happy days yeah um, I, I was never I was never too worried about people actually watching me so that that wasn't I don't think that was anything that really sort of bothered me when I was when I was fighting it's an interesting concept in itself as to how you can how you can train that people who do get quite phased by it. Because you hear about John Kavanagh and how his camps have fight simulations. I'm not sure to what extent that is the whole sort yeah. of fight that makes the makeshift fight show in the gym. Now that that's another point. This thing I want to get onto as well. You might have seen this in the UK Jiu-Jitsu Underground. They're doing these um, money where your mouth is tournaments. It's like a okay call outs. So if anyone wants to have like a but like 50 quids in, four-man tournament winning take-all kind of job. I absolutely love that. Like, at find a gym, draw out a square, let's have a match. It's like putting 20 quid down on me. <laughs> I mean, during quarantine, that's the absolute dream. Imagine that. It's an interesting concept. I like it. Oh, I absolutely love it. It's like... <laughs> oh... I'm trying to think of the references, like sort of people gambling on everything. Just people who just, like, imagine like a Ladbrokes kind of like trying to get odds on your grappling tournament. <laughs> odds on casting yeah. getting silver at grappling industries. Like odds on, I don't know, the Shane getting gold it's, at um, Empire. It's good. I like it. Yeah. Especially the money where your mouth is. Like, right, I think I can beat you. Here's my 20 quid. Where's your 20 quid? Let's go. I love it. Because you see, um, I think Jed Hugh did one for like 300 quid or something. I'm not sure. I mean, it's a preposterous amount. But yeah, it's all these kind of... I don't know. I love it. Because it kind of... I don't know. It's a, it's a healthy medium, I feel. Because when it comes to the jiu-jitsu mindset of, you know, it doesn't matter. Let's just get stuck in. But also, it's competition taken yeah. seriously. When it's that on the nose of, this is your money, you're putting on the line for it. So when you yeah. enter a jiu-jitsu competition, like 50, 60 quid and you get your plastic medal at the end of it, like, you used to take that as red. But to think, okay, yeah. this is the money I'm putting into it. For some reason now, because I can win it back, this now gives it more value. It's an interesting way of trying to drill that urgency. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now... Yeah, I mean, you, you, already, you already know you're going to lose money when you go to competition. You know, you're entering, you're paying just to enter, just to step on the map. 
So you kind of already know you're going to lose the money. But then when it's just you and one other opponent, you're putting your own money on the line. It makes it, yeah, it's a big difference. I like it. Now, that in itself begs another question. Emulating sort of fight and competition, sort of, I don't know, mindset and environment. Because ultimately what it is, is same sparring, the same rolling you do in the gym. But now because you've changed the platform, you've sold some tickets, now it becomes a different thing. How do you emulate that in training to try and, I don't know, say for a beginner, first fight, debut fight, no previous actual like competitive experience. How can you best emulate a fight? I think the only way you can kind of emulate it is by taking the sort of like pressure off of having your friends and family there. But obviously, if you've now said you want to be a fighter, your friends and family are going to want to be there to support you. Um, I mean, there's no real way of emulating it, especially in a gym. Even if you, you know, if you, if you got a crowd of people there to watch you spar and stuff like that, you still, you know, you're only going to sort of 80%. Uh, with teammates that you know already. Um, so there's no real way of emulating it, I don't think. Um, unless, again, you just take the pressure off by by going, okay, cool, my first couple of fights, I'm kind of going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to keep sort of like, I'm going to have a handful of training partners and coaches with me, but that's about it. I'm not going to shout it out too much to the rest of the world. Um, and get that experience for the first few. And then I can start sort of like, selling tickets after that because I can put a little bit of pressure on me because I kind of know what to expect now. I mean, this is a really interesting way of going about this because, again, this is unknown waters in itself. And much yeah. like this sort of, all the analogies you like, you don't know how you're going to swim unless you get in the water yourself. And then it's how you can then go them onwards. Like your, again, going onwards from your first sort of profile, okay, you sort of got stuck in sort of anyway. But there onwards, did you make quite a song and dance out of, okay, I'm fighting, buy, my, buy tickets, come along, or is it a case of, okay, I'm going to fight if you want to be there, you know. <laughs> kind of you um, I, yeah, I definitely did make a little bit of a song and dance out of it to start with. Um, I was sort of like, you know, pushing it, you know, Facebook, you know, I've got a fight coming up, everybody wants the tickets, you know, message me, blah, 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 see, see what's happening and stuff. And for the first few fights, I, I fought, fought mostly in Nottingham. So even with other, because there was a, a big Nottingham sort of scene, a lot of the, the UK, a lot of the, the local guys was all fighting on the card. So even people that I knew were buying tickets, even though they weren't necessarily coming to visit me, like, to watch me buying them from me, they were still coming along and I still knew them in the crowd anyway. So I ended up knowing quite a lot of people at most of my fights to start with. So I did make quite a big thing of it. And I guess it did put a little bit of pressure on it as well, but, Towards the end, I was just kind of like, yeah, come along. Support me if you want to. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go in there and fight. It's a fight at the end of the day. You know, no matter how many hundreds of people you've got watching you in the crowd, there's only you and one other guy and the referee in there. Now, the way you said it being a fight, I mean, this is an interesting mindset in itself. That how much do you feel you need bad blood or try to almost, I don't know, create some in yourself to get that kind of... I don't know, switch that sort of spike because you get mixed sort of people with it. Some people take it like, okay, this is a sport, we're going to compete versus, okay, this is a fight, I need to hate you to, you know, to destroy you. How do you talk Yeah, with me, me personally, I don't have to hate someone at all to fight them. It's no problem. You know, I, some of my best friends, we can have full-on fights in the gym. It's no, it's no problem. And then we're laughing about it afterwards. It's fine. But um, yeah, I, I think coming from the judo background where you had to 
you had to switch it on and then switch it off. You know, you've got like four, five, six fights in a day. Mm. Um, and especially coming from like a lot of the jiu-jitsu guys in grappling will sort of like have this mindset as well, is where, you know, you, you step up to the mat, you're about to go on the mat and you, you switch on. Then you're fighting. And then when you come off the mat, you've got to kind of turn off. Because if you, if you keep that energy for the whole day, you're going to burn yourself out after like one or two fights. And you've got three, four fights to do in a day. It's just not, you, you're not going to last. So for me, I was kind of like, I was always happy, joking, you know, dancing, being stupid in the changing rooms, warming up, getting myself ready and stuff. But then as soon as sort of like I was standing ready to walk down to the cage, that's when my brain started, you know, switching on. That was like me sort of bowing onto the mat and then getting in the cage. That was when I was getting ready to switch on. Now, that's always, um, I don't know, a point of, not a question. I'll stop saying it's, everything's interesting because then I get becomes a meme but yeah it's this thing of okay this is how you then switch on because i've had it many a time at my own jiu-jitsu competitions where i'm the opposite of that i'm trying so hard to relax i don't switch on when i need to or i'm so keyed up the whole time i can't switch it off and that kind yeah. of transition is always a bit of a yeah. funny one to try and work out and like you were saying earlier about being in the change rooms and like hanging around like i've had fight shows where i'm like one of the last of, of the show so i'm there yep. from my i don't know lunchtime till about six seven o'clock in the evening burn out and my last one i think before like four o'clock after that i was just, okay. the dream absolute dream <laughs> i got that one happy days and i could just relax and again it's just that level of just adrenaline just emotions and everything else because you're so on edge because you know like as much as you want to try and relax have a sleep not think about it you know it's in the back here i think i've got to get in my pants course, and fight yeah. someone in the cage in front of people in a minute so you know i've got to I <laughs> can't forget about that. It's one of the long to yeah, things to do. <laughs> okay. Have, have my fight. Get pick up some milk. And then we have my square one. Um now before we go into my MMA topics, striking vipers. How did you feel watching that? Oh my god, that was the weirdest, craziest thing I think I've ever watched. And when the guy said I fucked like a the polar, polar bear. <laughs> oh my I, I literally I couldn't stop laughing. I had to pause it. I had to physically pause it because I was I was crying with tears. It was just the fact that they, they, they sat there, they, they'd had sex together as a cartoon characters or whatever they were, like sort of like Street Fighter style characters. And you got two guys that are best friends and they've just had sex in some virtual world, which is crazy enough on, on its own anyway. And then they sat there having a dinner together for one of them's birthday. And he leans over and he's like, oh, you remember the character who's like half polar bear or whatever? I even fucked him. And then he's like, I fucked a polar bear. And I, I, that, it broke me. Absolutely broke me. I had to stop for about 15 minutes. I was crying with laughter. It was absolutely hilarious. Now that takes me so on quite funny. nice to um, the next sort of topic <laughs> regards of UFC 4. I'm not <laughs> saying about striking vipers, the pair of us, but more a case of, okay, the evolution of the fight games and how we can then make them more, I don't know, either keep them arcadey and a bit more informal to then also, and a more realistic. Like, I don't know, where, where do you see the sort of evolution of sort of video games sort of taking off in the sort of fight world? Well, I am well, this is, this is well over my head when it comes to video games. I am not a gamer at all. So I think I've probably played UFC maybe two or three times. And that's about it. I think when it first came out. So you're probably better off answering this question than me. I mean, this is where it gets really interesting. So when it comes to UFC, I keep saying it's really interesting. When it comes to the UFC games anyway, 
the evolution of fight games go from the sort of two-dimensional sort of street fighters to then the three-dimensional sort of blockheads and this, that, and the other. And it, the real point of contention is at what point is it too realistic it becomes boring? So do you want to have to sit in the sauna mentally trying to cut the weight? Do you want to have to argue with your girlfriend about, you know, not going out for dinner, <laughs> these little trivial sort of things? Or do you want to just, okay, I'm in the fight and I want to, I don't know, emulate certain things. So you can have like a headset on maybe, you can have a bit of VR, they might get too clunky. And the grappling system is always a bit fucked anyway to try and make it a bit more intricate. Because you know the difference. Like, you can say scissor sweep, prime example. Okay, yep. it's not just one movement. Okay, you've got to get the grips, you've got to get your base, you've got to get them over, you've got to push pull reaction, little things like that. And how much of that becomes impractical to try and translate into a game? It's a bit of a, I don't know, it's a funny one because they're trying to make it a bit more fighter sort of story. You have to build relationships with other fighters. I think it's an interesting concept. Like, with your doing camp, like a, like, a, like you do like a season of football, they're doing like a season where you sort of go to a gym, you train with partners, and then the sort of fighting is that how it's working now? Yeah, so what they're doing now is the same kind of idea of a career mode you start in a lower career mode, yeah, yeah, lower like profile organization, you work up your way up. But added interesting oh, okay. I've added is you can invite guys into your camp. So, say Colby comes to an example for someone in the trailer. And if you knock them out in training, you will then slag each other off on Instagram and you'll lose that relationship with someone to train with. But if you have a relationship with another fight, you can then learn their skills and this, that, and the other. Which brings oh, okay. quite an interesting sort of concept that, uh, okay, how you treat your potential competitors, but also fellow martial artists in the same sense that you, you take away the competition side. This is also skills to be learned. And with your own camps, have you ever felt the need to, I don't know, branch out or bring other people in have you ever kept things certainly specific or is it just making the most of your environment uh i mean when when i was doing my sort of fight camps it was basically just going off what uh coaches that i had at the time would be telling me you know i didn't know too much about mma and we're talking you know what was it 15 odd years ago now so it was you know quite old school compared to what it's like now and this you know how big it is now as well. So, you know, I was kind of like, when I first started, obviously traveling up to the Wolf's Edge, going off what the coaches were saying there, training with the guys up there. And then after that, you know, joining, you know, Rough House and, and Leicester Shoot Fighters and just going what, what Nathan was saying. So just keeping it very really sort of in-house. I, I sort of trained with the, with the Rough House guys and Leicester Shoot Fighters that we were all sort of together anyway. So, yeah, it was just, you know, different training partners, ones that I was training with quite regular so never really we never really brought people in to sort of mimic fighters and stuff not like people do now where they you know fly people in and you know bring them in just for that set fight camp just for the body shape or the the striking style or anything else like that. I mean that in itself adds extra variabilities to how specific you want to get and get too specific like you hear yeah. the amount of pull-ups and this that and the other like say if you like train for someone against like me someone quite lanky, quite rangy, and then I pull out and then someone short and stocky comes in. What is all that training and all those reactions built for? It's completely now yeah. flipped on its head. And then it's a question about, okay, if you can't guarantee that being the opponent, how specific do you want to train? And even then, like, an interesting, well, they're interesting, I keep saying interesting thing, a point of, um, I don't know, conversation I want to say is, upping training for up, up, changing the stage. So back to Modestas, he was saying when he got to the UFC, 
people were asking about, is he going to go out and train in the States, this, that, and the other? And he said, why would I? Because he's already fighting professional level to get to that stage. Yep. Why would he fix what isn't broken? But in the same breath then, if, say, on a smaller scale, you've had your amateur fights, now you go pro. Like, How did your training change from amateur to pro? I didn't do amateur. <laughs> so, again, yeah, back then, I literally just went straight in there. Uh, basically, what they used to call... Um, pro b class mm. so it was no elbows on the floor so you could elbow standing but not on the floor so it was basically the old cage rage rules um but they classed it as b class pro so it still went down on my pro record i think i did a couple of them and then it was just full pro rules still five minute rounds um i think my first one in cage warriors was just over two rounds rather than three but it was still b class rules so yeah, I didn't really have the, the change-up between the amateur and pro. Now, from an outside perspective then, do you feel there should be a, a big variance in the way you change things up again? Not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but how would you advise in someone making that transition regarding the training sort of styles and priorities? Um, right now, I don't think there is much difference between amateur and pro. You go to some of these amateur shows and I'm like, I'd be scared to fight that guy. And he's, you know, an amateur. Um, some of the amateur level was, you know, you've had a million of them on your podcast, you know, Macca and uh, Duncan Jalali and, and people like that. The amateur level, I mean, they, they're at a really good amateur level. They could, you know, 100% fight at pro level even now. So training-wise, I don't think a lot of people need to switch much up nowadays when it comes to the amateur and pro. The only difference is, is the, the round time and the elbows. That's literally all the difference there is nowadays. One or two little tweaks in the rules and that's it. I had this conversation with um, Jake Cross and he has a thing he says that um, you get professional amateurs and amateur professionals. Because you get guys like Maka, Duncan and like Jack Eglin, this, that and the other. Well, not anymore, but I'm pro, but idea of okay yeah. you get these amateurs who trains like an elite athlete like lexi rooks these people yes. who completely take it so seriously but then you get this sort of complacent pros who don't really like take it seriously about the commitments you know of only getting shape when they've got a fight coming up and then other than that they're just whatever else and it is interesting that then variability as okay they then go pro then that need to then change it all up and rule set wise it becomes another question so as you said there about ground and pound rules earlier about getting used to training with ground and pound so when you then go to fight under those rules you're then prepared for that yep training with knees and elbows obviously try and keep your partner safe but do you feel there should be some kind of involvement to try and i don't know start instigating those habits that's always a tough one obviously um you can use elbow pads you can use knee pads but the the power generated from an elbow and a knee is a a lot different to the power generated from a fist with a bigger glove on, even with an elbow pad and a knee pad on. So it's, it's a tricky one to try and I think it's something you just kind of like, you just do on the pads and you just kind of get used to. And you could, you can throw some positional sort of like elbows and stuff. If you work in, you know, cage stuff, like we've been speaking about earlier, cage stuff and work in the sort of push off with the elbows and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's really hard to incorporate them into, into training just in the gym. Because again, partner safety has got to be paramount as well because it's not just a case yeah. of your own development. It's also they've got you know their own training, their own career to worry about. They can't yeah, exactly. walk around with cuts. Because even then, 
I can't help but feel we should maybe even take out those kind of. I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. I guess I'm interested yeah. about where you um, draw <laughs> these lines between. Okay, this isn't necessarily safe to train, but people can still execute them in the pro level in the sort of big stages. Like you get the prime example: the Asker in um, Masvidal flying knee. You see yep. that? I think okay. Are you ever going to do that training against your training partners? <laughs> but it has worked yeah, on the world stage just, against one of the best wrestlers in the game. So yeah, it's just it's, you're just not going to be able to do it in the training in the training gym in the gym, should I say? Um, so the kind of the the way he actually wanted to land it, it was you know he, he's got a guy holding a tie pad, walking out, dropping down a level, and he's hitting that. He's running at it and hitting it. That's the way they would have trained it. Um, whether it's going to work actually in a fight or not, you just got to throw it and hope. I mean, that's um, I can't remember who it was last night on um Brave. They had someone who did a, he ran out for a flying knee. At the same time, the other guy went for like a turning sidekick, and then it all went a bit sort of lopsided. I'm not really sure what happened with that. It's interesting seeing okay when it doesn't quite work out and how you recover from it. But I guess that's part, yeah. part and parcel of you know being flamboyant and trying to be quite um quite a showman. That's it. Yeah, definitely. This is it. So, my friend, where can people find you on the old social media? Social media, as always, Carsten Langeois on Instagram and Carsten M. Langeois on Facebook. Fantastic. And also, guys, don't forget, if you want to send in any topics, send it over to Carsten or myself, Fisticuffs Podcast on all platforms. And I'll just also, say one thing before we on. finish. Uh, best of luck to Carl Booth, who's fighting on Brave 38 in Sweden. Um, his main event, he hasn't fought for a while. I know he's been looking forward to this. I know he's going to smash it as well. Shout out, Carl Booth. We'll get him on as well. Yeah, definitely. Today's episode was brought to you by Mauler MMA. Use code FCMMA20 at checkout for 20% off on all products on maulermma.com.